Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. That phrase, I think I dream about at night, it's going to probably be on my tombstone. It seems like I just say it so frequently, and I'm honored to do that because it's the lead-in to um, remarkable people that come and share their stories on this platform. And sometimes we have LDS authors on the platform, and we have two um, LDS authors that have come together to write a book. Um, Emily Cushing and Becky Hood, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, the name of their book, which is published by Desert Book, and we'll link to it in the show notes, The both at Desert Book and Amazon, is She Did, colon, Ordinary Woman, Ordinary Women, Extraordinary Faith. And um, this takes the story of 23 Latter-day Saint women um, that probably most of us don't know about and share their story. Um, before we went live, I learned that we're going to learn about the founder of the primary. I've always heard that a woman started the primary program in the church and it started in a local level and it was adopted churchwide. And, and listeners, I think I've thought that's factual, but I think we'll learn in this podcast a true story. I think it's Paul Harvey that used to say the rest of the story. We're also going to learn about um, a woman who died on the Titanic. Elder Cook talked about her a long time ago in a conference talk, song, song, Songs Unsung. And I've thought about that woman and I've forgotten the backstory and we're going to hear more about her, but that's just a couple of the 23 women. And I think these kind of stories help build faith in um, Latter-day Saints. And I hope that this book that we'll learn about is shared um, both in young women's and young men and elders quorum and Relief Society, because I think this builds faith um, in men and women hearing these kinds of stories. Um, Becky Hood is a full lives in Layton. She's a full-time clinical and mental health counselor. She grew up in Pennsylvania. She's got a couple of master's degrees, um, Arizona State University and a master of, I can't read my writing. Um, mm -hmm. Tell me what that says, Becky. Yeah, my undergraduate is from Arizona State, and I did a master's of English at BYU and a master's of clinical mental health counseling at Idaho State. That's right. Okay, there you go, listeners. That's a lot better. Um, <laughs> Emily Cushing lives in Alpine. She's a married mother of five. She grew up in South Jordan. Um, she has a master's degree from BYU in Emily, and then tell teaching us what and you, learning. and then tell us teaching and learning, and then tell us what you do at UVU. I teach in the elementary education department, so I'm teaching students how to be elementary school teachers, and it's it's a dream job. I love it. That's great. Tell us before we get into the book, give us, I mean, when people write a book, they hope it does something for other people. Tell us, either one of you could just share, and listeners, the way I frame up these podcasts, it's like Becky and Emily and I are all out to lunch, and I'm just trying to learn about their book and their story. So you're kind of all coming to lunch with us. And this is the way I kind of approach these podcasts. So I don't do a lot of prep. I don't know the book. I don't know these two women, but we're all kind of going to learn their story. Anyway, um, what do you hope the book accomplishes? Becky, it looks like it's your turn. I saw the finger pointing. <laughs> so I love the subtitle of the book where it's Ordinary Women, Extraordinary Faith. And we hope that as readers pick up this book, they will realize that these women's stories, that they're their own stories, that they engage in incredible acts of faith and they don't need to do anything hugely significant or groundbreaking, just their testimonies, their ability to testify of Christ and serve others can already have such an incredible impact within their families and communities. And so we hope that readers, regardless of their age or even gender, that they will see this and be like, I can do this too, that I have a story to share and that I'm capable of wonderful things. Emily, anything to add to that? That's terrific, Becky. I completely agree. And one thing about the women in the book, I, I would imagine that they would never even think that they would be in a book one day. Um, kind of like what Becky touched on is they were just doing kind of ordinary things in their lives. They were going about living their life and but each one of us has a story. And so we hope that readers will see themselves within these stories and know 
that um, they too are someone and they're not maybe someone who started an organization or sailed on the Titanic, but that's not their story. That's not who Heavenly Father wants them to be. They have their own path. And I think that if they listen to what they're meant to be, that they can change the people around them and change themselves and, and make the world a better place. So cool. They're, I've always imagined when we get to the other side, um, Heavenly Father is going to take us to a tall mountain figuratively and see the good that we've done that we may not be aware of. And I think when we also get over there, we'll see some really heroic people that we didn't know. And their service was very silent and not seen and incredible in their circle of influence. And so I love the focus of this book. Listeners, um, this is kind of a tangent that may come up at times. People reach out to me and you may be interested in this subject too and saying, I want to publish a book. And that is a good prompting, and I like that prompting. And then you may wonder, should I self-publish? Should I approach um, Desert Book or one of the other publishers that are connected to Desert Book like Cedar Fort? And this is a book that is published by Desert Book, and it came out in May of 2023. Um, well, one of you just, I want to make sure we get to the book, but um, my feeling is Desert Book is um, sort of has the kind of content they're looking for. So they probably get more requests of terrific books than they can publish. And so when someone submits something to Desert Book, they may not get published, not because it's not a great book, but Desert Book is looking um, for kind of types of content. Um, and I don't want to speak for Desert Book, um, but you did feel impressed to get, go through Desert Book. Do you want to talk a little bit about that process and why you feel your book was selected? Um, do you want me to talk? So, so I pitched the book to Desert Book in May of 2021 and I approached them just because I did feel like they would be a good fit, but you're right. There are a lot of books that they probably, um, that get pitched to them that don't get picked up. And I know they probably have a very small amount that they can publish each year, but Becky and I spoke with the acquisitions editor. And one thing that she told us is that she is looking for books that she herself would like to read. And so, so I think that's a big thing. And I also think they're looking for books that um, have diversity in them that can speak to a lot of people and, um, you know, and they also have a spiritual undertone like this one does about how these women embrace their futures with faith, despite their circumstances. And a lot of them did have hard circumstances. And a lot of times we see that they triumphed over those. And doesn't that make a great story, no matter what genre you're reading? And, and sometimes they didn't. That's the other thing. Life can be hard, like you were saying. Um, but I think maybe that's one thing that, that spoke to them about this book and also that it focused on women and it feels like they wanted to focus, have some stories out there about women who maybe we've never heard of before. And honestly, when I tell people about the book, it seems like there's only maybe one, possibly two of these women that people have heard of. And that in itself, I think is kind of cool. Like uh, Aurelia, Aurelia Rogers. I had never heard of her before and she founded the primary. So I, it was so interesting to get to know about her life story and the amazing things that she accomplished. One of them being organizing the primary. Anything to add Becky or any advice as people reach out to you and realize you're, you're both publishers and they want to publish a book. Do you have any advice for them? Sure. So prior to Emily contacting me, I'd actually pitched a different manuscript of my own to Desert Book and they weren't able to accept it. And they will take the time to read it and they'll take it to a committee. They're really looking for like the faith community. Like, how are they going to be able to market this? What does the community need? And when they were talking about she did, um, just like Emily said, we haven't heard of so many of these women. And so they thought there's an audience for this. There's a big audience for this. And so in terms of sharing wonderful ideas, but also just the marketability of it for the business aspects, that's that's really important to them. And, and that's understandable. That makes sense. Anything else on this subject before we move on to... Okay. Well, I was going to say, don't give up. If, if it's something you think about every day and you just love writing, which I haven't, and I've been in a writing group since 2008. And this is like 
the first time I've had a published book since that writing group. And, and it's good to like, tell someone else your dream, keep working at it and, you know, keep pitching book ideas. And maybe one of these times it's something that, that they want to pick up. Um, so yeah, don't give up if it's something you love. That's great. And I said this in other podcasts, if you want to write a book, you've got to figure out, you know, you could still write a book if you don't consider yourself a writer. I don't really consider myself a writer and I've written a couple of books, but I've learned to surround myself, the contents in my head. That's probably the most important thing. You have content in your head and some of the things that these two women are talking about, passion, a unique story, unique interest, um, feel like something that people would be interested in. And then you could be a writer and be really good at writing all the good ideas in your head out in an organized, thoughtful way that can be submitted a manuscript that you may need to um, surround yourself with somebody that can get the content down on paper and that may cost money. So that's another challenge of that road, but um, don't dismiss your ability to write a book because I, I mean, I got really bad ACT test scores in those subjects. I did good in math and terrible and all the things that would sort of predict somebody would write a book. So uh, my personal story doesn't really point to being an author. And I share that um, just because maybe, you know, you could be an author if that's part of your passion. But now let's talk about, do you want to talk about specific women? There's 23. Um, yeah, the th few that we just love to hear about, or I'll just let either of you kind of go next on what you want to do next in this podcast. Do you want to start, Becky? And is there someone you want to talk about? Of course. And so when Emily was starting with this project, she had done a lot of research on the women who were already deceased. And so when I was recruited to help with the book, my job was to focus on living Latter-day Saint women. And so I had the privilege and honor of being able to... Um, interview them and then to take just a slice of their life and put it into words so that people could read their stories. And one of my absolute favorite ones, it was Becky Douglas, and she has such an incredible and moving story. So she started this organization in India to help people with Hansen's disease or leprosy. And the way that she started that, it was remarkable. Um, her daughter had completed suicide. And so she went to her daughter's dorm room to gather her things. And she realized that her daughter was making donations to an orphanage in India. And so in lieu of flowers, at her daughter's funeral, they asked for donations and they were able to accrue so much money that the orphanage reached out to Becky and said, like, we would like to invite you to be part of the board. And Becky went out to India to explore and to see what it was like. And she noticed that there were people in the streets who have Hansen's disease. And a lot of them were begging and they just had rotting and mangled flesh. And it was so difficult for her to see where she wanted to turn away. And as she was praying, she was thinking, who can help these people? And she had this impression like, you can, you can help these people. And so as we were talking, she just explained the trial and error efforts of getting this organization started where they made mistakes in the beginning and they put together initiatives that weren't effective, but eventually they were able to start a program of microloans to help these communities uh, get back up on their feet and to be able to have jobs and have more financial stability. And they were also able to start schools and offer antibiotics so that people could be cured of Hansen's disease. And so I loved her story so much. She was a joy to talk to. And she really focused on how in the greatest tragedy that a parent could ever imagine, you know, something as awful and as tragic as losing a child to suicide, that Henley father was able to create beauty from the ashes, that she had an opportunity to continue her daughter's legacy and to create just this 
lifetime organization of service to people who really needed it on the complete other side of the world. And so I, of course, love all of the women that I interviewed, but her her story, I think about it frequently in my conversation with her. It was incredible. What an interesting, um, unique story. Completed suicide is a, it's a really thoughtful way as I'm learning more about how to talk about that space, but then that heartbreaking moment, realizing what this wonderful person that died was interested in, and then sort of running with that. That's a really unique story. Mm-hmm. Keep sharing. Sure. Um, so one thing that I was really intrigued about um, when Deseret Book was reaching out to Emily, they were searching for a co-author of color. And so I'm not exactly sure how my name ended up on the short list, but my name was there. And I'm so glad because when Emily and I were talking about the book, I was really, really excited to work on this project. And one thing that stands out to me, when we first started drafting this book, the format was completely different. We started writing as if it was like a biography, like this person was born in 19 something and we kind of went through their whole lives. And then the person that we were working with at Deseret Book, she's like, what if you were to do it a little bit differently? Like, what if you were to kind of skip the biography and just focus on a story, like focus on a specific slice of their life? And Emily and I, we would be on the phone. We're like, what do we do? Like, we have to rewrite so much. That decision, though, I believe was so divinely inspired because the difference between writing a biography, like a mini biography versus a story for each woman, it makes such a huge difference. Like this book engages a lot of challenging topics. It talks about um, racism. It talks about infertility. It talks about um, a single woman having to navigate life in a church that focuses on families. And a lot of times people can have flip reactions or judgments because they're touchy topics and sometimes they're really uncomfortable. But when we tell those stories in the form of a story, that's where people's imaginations are engaged. That's where they're able to see themselves in the narrative. And they're much more likely to empathize and feel compassion for people who are completely different from them. And so I'm just thinking about how the process of the book came together really it was divinely inspired and how we were able to write this book in a way that would reach as many hearts as possible and would allow people to suspend judgment and their own belief and value systems for just a moment so that they could immerse themselves in a story with these people. Agreed. And this brings up one um, that I was going to share, and it is about Martha Ann Howell. And she um, she was born in shortly after the Civil War ended. She was black and she was a Latter-day Saint. Her grandparents had been enslaved. In fact, one of them is um, Green Flake, if you've uh, heard of his story or seen the movie. But um, he was in, he was baptized and enslaved and he came across the plains and was there. They think he was there when when Brigham Young said this is the right place. And her grandmother had also been enslaved. So she lived in this really unique period um, of time of the United States. She was born shortly after the Civil War. And then she died one week to the day before the U.S. Supreme Court outlawed um, segregated schools. And so she herself was able to read, but her husband, he had been enslaved in the South and he was illiterate. And so you can imagine how um, how education and how, how being able to read what that meant to Martha Ann, because that had been something that a lot of her ancestors had didn't have access to. And so 
the thing that she really pushed with her children was literacy. She knew that that was key. And one of her biggest things in her life was that she wanted them to be able to have a better life than what she and, um, you know, those before her had had. So they lived in Salt Lake and her husband was a farmer and she and her children would walk a long distance to the library every single week so that they could get more books. And her daughter, Lucille was her name. She said that her mother insisted that they read and that she insisted that they taught her father, their her father, Lucille's father, um, Martha Ann's husband, how to read as well. And so, and they read the scriptures, they read like basically everything they could get their hands on. And so I love the story of Martha Ann. And when we were talking about these people that are quietly just making a difference within their own families, you can see how Martha Ann, how that was important to her. And that's what she made a priority. And then um, her daughter, Lucille, she went on to be the first Relief Society president of the Genesis Group, which was started in the early 70s. Um, for for Black Latter-day Saints. And, um, and, you know, she also made a difference with the positions that she was in. And so I love her story, her being a mom and caring so much about her children and their future and her husband and the things that she did to make sure that they learned something that now we take, you know, so much for granted. And that is being able to read. And so that's a story that has really touched me, especially last week with it being Juneteenth and um, and celebrating that. I thought a lot about Martha Ann and, and her efforts. I love these stories of, you know, sometimes we measure success of what we can do outside of our family. And there's a lot of stories in your book of probably a woman who has done things like you first mentioned, Becky, in a, in a you know, taking on a working to solve a serious illness. And those are awesome. But sometimes the legacy of our lives is just within the walls of our home and the, and our subsequent posterity and the values we teach. And sometimes I think that's back to God taking us up to that tall mountain someday. And we may not see um, the things that we're doing as parents. And even as our adult kids make choices that aren't consistent completely with what we hope they choose that, Maybe in the long run, we see the totality of what we've done as parents. And and this example of literacy is, is really important, but maybe there's sort of other things that we do um, that really prepare our kids for the future that we don't realize right now and the importance of what we're doing in the quiet work in our homes. I think you mentioned you're, you're an author, a co- an author of color. Did you say that, Becky? I did. Do you want to talk more about your cultural heritage for our listeners? I'm putting sure. you on the I'm putting you on the spot, but I think you can handle it. And no I think problem. you and you've taught at BYU. I don't know if you're still teaching at BYU, but I think both of you are doing a lot of really cool things in our community. But go ahead, Becky. Sure. Yes. Well, I am Asian American, so my dad is white and my mom is Chinese, and. My dad actually served his mission in Taiwan. And when he went to school at UC Santa Barbara, he met my mom and they obviously hit it off great. (laughs) (laughs) So I have this really unique combination of these cultures that are really important to me, where I have the stories of how my dad's ancestors crossed the plains and how they sacrificed so much in order to come to Utah. And then I also have my mom as a pioneer of being one of the first members of the church and how a lot of times she took herself to church on her own. And so I appreciate with my family, they really prioritized joining together these two cultures where we would have, you know, Halloween and we would have Easter, but then we would also have those red envelopes for Chinese (laughs) New Year. And we all would always love to have Chinese food and like celebrate with our grandparents. And so I think my parents really instilled an appreciation for both of these cultures. And it helped me like really expand my worldview about a lot of a lot of different cultures, my desire to learn more about them, but also sometimes the difficulty of like not being like a hundred percent Chinese would be like half white, half Asian. And so I feel like that has helped me a lot, especially when I encounter clients like that in my practice, I'm better able to empathize with them. So yeah, it's, it's helped me see a lot of people differently. It's helped me 
be able to relate to folks in ways that I ordinarily would not have been able to do as much. Thank you for that. Um, a podcast that's released before you, um, three BYU professors, they talk about tunis. It's a term I've never really heard before. T-W-O-N-E-S-S. And I can't remember um, I, the author that introduced that, but a lot of us don't experience tunis as a Latter-day Saint <laughs> and or in, even as an American. Um, but I love the way you talk about this duality you have, if that's the right vocabulary, in such a positive, healthy, good way. And um, I think as we create Zion tunis, the goal of tunis isn't to get everybody oneness. It's oneness and unity, but take all of our unique, beautiful differences of tunis and threeness, if that's part of us, and look at that just like you described um just your love for both of your cultural heritage and how and that how your parents brought both of that into your family culture and didn't sort of said we're gonna just gonna be this way or this way and brought that both into you. And I just see you smiling on the Zoom. You're so proud of both of your cultural heritage. Anything more on that before we shift to a, another woman's story? Nope. And I actually, if you would like me to, I have, there's a woman's story in the book that touches on that a little bit. If Go you want for me to it. share that. Yes, Emily. And, and this is, this is one of the women that perhaps um, people had heard of uh, maybe the older generations. Um, and that is Chieko Okazaki. And she was, um, her parents were Japanese plantation farmers in our laborers, I guess is the correct term in Hawaii, although they were born in America and so was Chieko. And so she was born in 1926 and she was Buddhist and so were her parents. And some sister missionaries came to her school one day and invited anyone who wanted to come over to the little chapel to learn about this religious class, they could come. So she and three other Japanese girls, they went over to learn from the sister missionaries. And the things that she was learning, she felt like it really went along well with her Buddhist teachings, which was um, about being loyal and respectful and showing love to others. And in addition, she also learned about Jesus Christ, which she also felt like, okay, I, I like this. And so for four years, she kept going back. And she said that uh, for four years, she she lived as both a Buddhist and a Mormon. And then finally, she was baptized. And she was baptized around the same time that um, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor wow. when she was 15. And she said that uh, her her testimony in the Savior gave her a lot of comfort. And so she was glad about that. But right after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, her family was, had Japanese heritage, even though, again, they had grown up in um, the United States. But they were so scared about what this meant for them because, you know, the country of their heritage had just bombed the United States. So she and her mom feverishly gathered all of their Japanese belongings that they could find, books, fans, pictures. They lit a big bonfire and they burned it. And after the smoke um, died down, she went and she looked in the mirror. And what she said she saw looking back at her was a Japanese girl. And she there's that's who she was. No matter that she burned all of that stuff, that's who um, Heavenly Fatherhood made her to be was Japanese. And so at that moment, she decided that she was going to learn to ways to bridge um, cultures and help people to have better understanding across cultures. And really throughout her life. And, and, you know, we know she went on to be, she was the first um, person of color across all three auxiliaries to serve on the general board. And um, truly that was one of her messages. She had so many great messages. She seemed to be fearless and amazing. And I've, I interviewed both of her sons and it was so great talking to them, but um, she, you can see so many times where she tried to do that throughout her ministry, um, trying to just build cultures and and make others feel loved and also to make them feel like it's okay that you're not exactly like the person sitting next to you in Relief Society. And it's also okay for um, you to have a culture and to not abandon that, even if you become a member of the church, that these are important things that you need, that you can, and it's possible to combine them. And that's something I love about her story. Well, I'm a fanboy of of that woman, and 
Um, I've same up girl. <laughs> um, you know, she gets, I'm on Twitter listeners and she gets quoted an awful lot. I'm not sure there's, uh, I don't know. I mean, she just gets quoted an awful lot and her message is really timeless. How when did she die? Do you know off the top of your head, Emily? In 2011. So she's been gone 12 years and how long ago was she released from that, um, church assignment? Cause she was in the, one of the presidencies, I think of the young she was. She ended up serving across all three auxiliaries in some position or other um, on the general board. And and you did ask when she, when did she pass away? And the thing is, is her one of her sons. When I was talking to him on the phone, he said, "You know, I wish she was still here. She'd be almost a hundred, but we could sure use her in our family with my grandchildren. And we still just wish she was here because she was such a voice of wisdom and kindness and love." She she was and is. I'm just so moved by her ministry, and it was really bef- it's timeless, and it's really needed to your point now. And um, she just taught the gospel. She didn't make up new stuff to just build bridges. She taught the gospel, and at sometimes I wonder if people that are more I don't know. I was gonna I don't want to why people that have to navigate complicated personal stories are better at compassion, empathy, and understanding. That's probably not fair to say that, but sometimes somebody like her that just knows what it's like to be an outsider at times has felt that on a personal level that's more attuned to making sure other people that feel like they don't belong for whatever reason, they tend, I don't know if that's true listeners. I'm not, that's just a general (laughs) hypothesis, but what a wonderful ministry of hers. And yeah, I wish she were live today too. I'd love to see her on social media. <laughs> yeah. And one of my favorite um, sharing stories all about her, her latest thoughts. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. And I touched a little bit on like your own culture. One of my favorite stories about her is when she was set apart, President Hinckley, he had said like, help her to have like the gift of tongues almost. And so she went to the translation department and she had them translate her talks into some of the languages. I know for sure Spanish and Tongan. And then she went and practiced and practiced and practiced and delivered these talks in their, their own language. So they would just feel like, Hey, I, I don't want to translate. I want to give it to you in your own language to let you know that like, I love you. And, and it's great that you, you don't have to speak English. I'll come to you kind of meeting you where you are so that I can share this message with you. Wow, she didn't need to do that. Um, but what kind of a message does that send? And what can we do to do this similar thing when it comes to meeting somebody where they are with their culture? Um, just the very things that make us um, the, bo- the body of Christ that are differences in us. And instead of asking people to come my way, what can we go do to follow her example, to meet people where they are and the message it sends them about love and empathy and inclusion and you belong and I care about you. That's so thoughtful. Keep sharing, Emily or Becky. And everybody, Becky's name is not spelled the way you might think it's spelled. It's spelled B-E-K-K-I. So think about if you're visualizing Becky's name, visualize it that way. (laughs) Anyway, keep Emily spelled Emily. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so keep sharing, ladies. Yeah. So we were talking about a little bit ago where we look for these grand expressions of of service, and it doesn't need to be that. It can be something that happens within our own home. And I was reminded. So the second interview that I did, it was with a woman named Melissa Lawrenson, and. I was really excited to talk to her. She is the youngest of the living women that um, we have featured in this book. And she lives in New Zealand. And I remember coordinating time zones was very difficult. And I checked the time zone at least half a dozen times. And I still managed to get it wrong, where she sent me a message on Facebook. And she said, "Uh, are we still meeting? And I saw the message and was like, oh, no. And so I was actually on a, a day and very rudely like it kicked this poor gentleman out of my home. He's like, I've got to go and interview this woman. But it was such a powerful interview, a bit of her story. So she she lost her father 
at a young age and she was in the middle of a college semester when a brother contacted her and said, mom isn't doing well. Like we need you to come home. And she was resentful of that. She thought, wait a minute, I have two brothers. Why do I have to be the one to take care of my mom through this illness? And it was very consistent with um, like Samoan custom and, and their culture where the daughter is a caregiver to the parents. And so as her mom's condition rapidly declined, um, Melissa was talking about how she wanted somebody to know how she was feeling. And so she would sigh a lot and she would have a frown on her face. And she just wanted so badly for people to see that she was hurting. But then she remembers that her mother looked up at her, her mother who's so strong and her mother had tears in her eyes and said, Melissa, I'm so sorry. And when Melissa heard that, like her heart melted and she was so humbled. And so the day from that day until her mother died, um, Melissa wanted to serve with a smile on her face and to show her mom that love and care. And this is a story that happened just between her and my mom. And I found myself revisiting it because my mom was in the exact same situation when her mother was in hospice. Um, my mom is one of two children. She has a brother. And as like, consistent with Confucianism, like the daughter is going to take care of the family. And my mom, my mom struggled with that. It was hard. It was inconvenient for her to drive or fly to California in order to take care of her mother. And yet my mom, my mom did it. She really carved away space of her schedule. And I asked her, I was like, why, why are you doing this? It was so hard for her. And she said, I'm doing this because I want to say that I can, that I did my best to serve my family. And so the parallels that I saw between Melissa's story and my mom's own story, that meant a lot to me. And I saw my mom as an ordinary woman with extraordinary faith. But really during that process, I saw her as an extraordinary woman doing a really, really hard thing. Wow. Love that. That is awesome. Uh, can, I, can I mention something about Melissa? So Becky and I, um, we feel like the women in this book were meant to be in there for some reason, their stories needed to be in there. And, and some of them came to us in kind of miraculous ways. We feel like, right, Becky, it was, it was crazy how they came out where others, we felt like, oh, maybe this person should be in and we would come to make it maybe like a dead end. And so, um, with Melissa, I had heard the story of someone that Melissa had had baptized or had taught, I'm sorry, someone that Melissa had taught while she was on her mission and who ended up getting baptized. It was a Samoan woman who was both deaf and blind. And it was just a small article that I saw about this woman. And I thought that that, that other woman's story was really cool. And I thought, oh, she'd be a cool person how in the book, but she lived in like a remote village in, in Samoa. And I thought, I don't know how we'll ever get a hold of her. And I had heard a little bit of Melissa's story in the same article and thought, well, maybe we'll focus on Melissa instead. And so in my mind, I thought Melissa was from Samoa and 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 started searching for you're kind of like a detective when you're looking for these women who you've seen one little article about and so kind of set off on this detective work but i finally realized oh i think that she is um actually from or living in new zealand and her name was in the article was melissa tail and so my son happened to go on his mission to new zealand in 2018 and i thought this is a shot in the dark. I'm just going to text him and say, have you ever heard of a Melissa tail? So I text my son and he texts back and says, tail is a very common last name. 
that will be very hard to find her. And I was like, okay. And he's like, but you know, maybe send me a picture of her and I can ask if anyone else that I know knows her. And so I said, okay. So I took a screenshot of the picture that was in this article, sent it to him. And he texts right back and says, she was one of my teachers in the New Zealand MTC. And within probably a half an hour, we had her contact information. Wow. And so that's just one of the, there's a few stories like that, where all of a sudden we were able to make contact with a woman and, and it made us just know, like, for some reason, that person was supposed to be in this book for like what Becky was just saying, the others can connect to and feel of their strength and hopefully learn from. Wow. Well, that brought tears to my eyes. <laughs> this wonderful woman in New Zealand that's you now her stories in this book for the whole church to read. Yeah. And, and it was really cool because um, Melissa had lost both of her parents and a family in her ward stepped up and paid for her mission. Is that right, Becky? That's right. Yeah. So I think it was Jay and Kim Fiti Sumanu. They stepped up and they said, don't worry about your mission. We're going to help you pay for it. And so that's how Melissa was able to go to Samoa and she was able to share the gospel with that woman, Levia Laval, who was blind and deaf and also had like amputated legs. And so it's just through that community of service and cooperation that they were able to help each other, but it also enabled us to be able to reach out to them in the first place. And so it's remarkable how a lot of those bits and pieces end up fitting together. Um, I've thought about, you know, platforms that people have. Some people um, have a platform because they um, have a senior calling or a calling in a ward or stake or church-wide, and so they have a chance to share their story. And um, perhaps some people also have a social media platform where they can create content and more people can connect. But I, I think about Melissa right now that has no platform. You know, she's served in... And this represents so many listeners and so many of our faithful members um, that, you know, they will never, and I'm not being, it's just the reality of a worldwide church with 17 million members will never hear their stories. Um, and I hope they don't get triggered ever that they don't have a platform or, you know, they don't have a way to share broadly their life experiences, things that they've learned, they could share others, but they just feel at peace that what they're doing is really important. Sometimes I'm a temple worker. And sometimes when I say this is a little tender, um, when I say the prayer in the temple, I, I pray for the president of the church. That's the only person we can mention by name, by instruction is president Nelson. But sometimes I'll just then pray for the the people that serve quietly behind the scenes in the church and mention librarians and nursery leaders. And it's kind of my attempt to make sure we're thinking about everybody that's serving. And those people all, you know, have a calling, but some people, what they do doesn't show up on what I would call their LDS tools profile um, <laughs> that are still as part of their baptism covenants doing really remarkable things that we may not fully understand um, the totality of their mission. And so I think this is cool. And for young, and I want to ask you about, I, I want to ask you about the primary founder and the Titanic woman. But I, one of the things listeners I love about this book is I think young, especially for everybody, it's still kind of writing their story. I'm 60 some odd. So it's harder for me to write my story. A lot of it's been written and sort of on a trajectory, but for younger people, you know, teens, twenties and thirties, you're still writing your story and you're still trying to figure out exactly how this is going to play out. And our church leaders talk a lot about write your own story with Christ. And I think these kind of stories, um, 23, and I love the title of your book, Ordinary Woman, Extraordinary Faith. That's the subtitle. It's not like you write your story the same way they wrote their story, but it gives you vision for how to write your story and gospel principles and how that works. And, and I think it's good for our mind to see all these different ways that, you know, we have faith and extraordinary faith, some that are known more broadly and some that aren't. So keep sharing. I don't know if you want to go to the primary. I've old listeners, I've already always heard that the primary started with a, a woman in a ward. And I've never really known if that's urban legend or actual fact. And I think 
you could do that one or you could talk about the Titanic or anything you want to do. Um, yeah, we can talk about it really. I wanted to tell you something really quickly as we, um, you know, when you're researching out someone's life, there is certain people, there's a lot that you can find on them. And so I just wanted to give you a taste of uh, researching out these women's lives. And I'll just give you one example. It's a woman named um, Beverly Campbell, and she was an ambassador, a U.S. ambassador uh, in um in Washington, D.C. But for hers alone, you have to take all of this information and then you basically have to condense it into something like Becky was saying earlier, like some sort of angle or something that's interesting, a story. And so it, it takes a lot of time. And um, but I wanted to just tell you, we with her alone, we read newspaper articles about her. We read excerpts from books and talks she had written and given. And then I exchanged emails with her son and daughter in law. And then um, I listened to hours of personal interviews on Family Search. And then she had been on the Donahue show. No way. So I actually went down to BYU got out the, checked out the transcripts, read the transcripts of the Donahue show just for one sentence that ended up being in the book. And then this is probably the funniest one, but I also listened to her funeral <laughs> several times. And then once I was done, I sent off to like her family members for them to read and to see and make sure that we had accurately, um, you know, captured who she was. So that was some of the process of what we did to make sure that we are really getting to know these women and who they were before we presented them to everyone. But with Aurelia, she was, um, where should I start with her story? I'll start with her, her, her mom had passed away. Her parents were converts and Aurelia was back in the time. I mean, she knew Joseph Smith, that he was one of her neighbors in Nauvoo. She knew all of these like church people from the past that the, all these figures that we hear of um, from the past, she was right there with them. She was in Nauvoo. She saw even the procession when the, when the prophet was martyred, she saw that she even went in and saw him lying there. And so um, anyway, uh, her mom died when they were coming, going to Nauvoo. And then her dad, he was called on a mission so it was up to Aurelia, who was 12 at the time, and her 14-year-old sister to take care of the four younger siblings. And then um, they came. And then so her father left for three years over to England. And Aurelia and her sister took care of the younger ones for a year there. And then they Brigham Young invited them to come across the plains with him on the second time around. So he, they came across the plains with their younger siblings in tow, and then they got to Salt Lake. And she was married when she was 16, which was kind of, you know, that was kind of the age back then, even um, outside of the of the church. And then she lived up in bountiful. And there were some boys in the street that she thought were a little too rowdy. And she thought there needs to be something to help these boys to um, learn to be like more respectful, more their behavior needed to improve. And so she um, presented a plan to church leaders, John Taylor, he was the prophet at the time, but she also wanted to include girls. And so she 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 said, what if we had an organization for the children? We have one for the adults. What if we made one for the children? And so they had their first primary meeting and they sang songs and they taught them lessons and they read scriptures, kind of the same thing that we do today. And she loved those children. I think that was the base of it. She had lost a lot of her own children. And um, when she was giving birth to them, not very many, I think seven out of 12 lived to adulthood. So she had lost five of her own little ones. So she loved children. And in her biography, in her autobiography that I read, she named every single child who had been at that first primary meeting. Wow. So that kind of shows you the love that she had for them. So it wasn't, she just was like, oh, these kids are rowdy. They need some, you know, they need to be whipped into shape. She had a great love for these children and she was a, an amazing person. So it was great to see that she was the one who came up with the idea. She was the one who um, was at the first and, and within a few, a couple years, I think every uh, settlement 
in the church had a primary after she kind of started the first meeting. And tell our listeners her full name. Her full name. So her full name is um, Aurelia Reed Spencer Rogers. And sometimes I'll accidentally call her by one of her maiden names, <laughs> <Hi>, Becky. <laughs> but it is Aurelia Rogers was her was her married name. So this would be, um, I'm Googling her. I know the S answer. So it's, this is like 1880 or so. And she, is that about right? This is that long- is right. She was born in 1834 and then she died in 1922. Um, so this is longer ago listeners than I thought it was. I thought it was like in the 1920s or 1930s, but this is way back. Um, yeah. Her, and if she's her home a- and, and, and Bountiful didn't have a floor. It, it was dirt. When they first got to Salt Lake, she lived in an old fort. And so they, she did not have, like, I would say it would be like poverty nowadays is what she kind of lived in when they first got here. I wonder how many millions of um, Latter-day Saints have been through the primary program. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I'm in my 60s and can still name every single primary president um, and many of the teachers. Um, just the impact that those women and men have on our lives and that organization. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Um, we've got time for like one more or two more. I'd love you to talk about um, the Titanic. I think this, because the Titanic just so was fascinating, but um, I was, as you were talking, I think the name of the song, talk that Elder Cook gave is the songs they could not sing. And I think that's from 2011. Listeners, I just remember that talk because sometimes we talk in church about how our prayers are answered and how everything works out. And Elder Cook was pretty thoughtful in sharing about this wonderful woman who died at the in the middle of just wanting to serve people. It was on a voyage home, and um, it helped me just understand that life's complicated and really, really tragic things happen to incredible people. So. Um, tell us the name of this woman, if you want to talk about her next and her story. So her name was Irene Corbett and, um, and she was an extraordinary, she was a teacher first, and then she was a nurse in Provo. And at the time the infant and even mother um, mortality rate was high. And because she was really good at like what she did, doctors, they said, why don't you go over to England? There's a really good nursing school over there and learn some skills that can help to lower the mortality rate here. And this was a hard decision for her. She was 30 years old at the time. She had three young children. One of them was only one years old. And, um, and so she didn't know if she should do it. She prayed a lot and she was very thoughtful about this. Her husband didn't really want her to go and neither did her in-laws, but her parents were very supportive and they thought this was a really good thing that could help a lot of people. So, and it was a six month program. She sailed over there and the entire time she wrote home and she even wrote home home, and they would publish it in the Provo newspaper so that they could see what was going on in England at the time, which was kind of different because not very people had been over there or they had been there a long time ago. And so she, um, she then was there for six months, learned these skills and it was time to come home. And on her, this is like a crazy part of the story to me. She had gone over on a smaller boat and had gotten really sick, seasick. Everyone on the boat had gotten seasick because of like, there was a storm. And she said on the way home, I want to get home as quickly to my family as possible. And so she booked on this large brand new ship thinking it would get her home quickly and that it wouldn't be like that small boat was going over. And the ironic thing about it is when the Titanic was going, was sinking, one of the ships that started going to help them was the small ship that she had sailed over to England on. They were one of the ones going to try to help the people. So anyway, she did, um, Elder Cook talks about this in his talk, but she booked on the Titanic also because she heard that LDS missionaries would be aboard. And there was a kind of a common known thing among ship captains that they were good luck. And so she, that was another reason why she booked on this, but she didn't know that one, that the missionaries, one of them couldn't make it that day. So all of them didn't get on the boat. They were not on the Titanic when it sunk. And so 
she, her family believes, I uh, interviewed her 86 year old grandson who has a lot of her memorabilia. They believe that she stayed on the boat or at least was helping people on the boat because of her nursing background and because of her, um, because of her, who she was. They don't have evidence of that, but 96% of the people who were in her class of um, boat, her boat class, um, ended up surviving and she did not. So they don't know why she didn't get on one of the lifeboats. That's maybe one of the reasons they think that she didn't get on it. Another interesting thing is her, her parents had mortgaged their farm in order to pay for her to go over there. And so you can imagine how they felt when she passed away. And so, um, her grandson told me that in a journal that he, that, that it was said that her, her, her dad's hair turned white overnight, basically, is what people said, that, that it was so devastating that, that they had lost her in that way when they had been so supportive of her. And then, I, like you were just saying, tragedy happens to everyone. And five years after she drowned, um, her husband was killed in a mining accident. And so, so the 86-year-old grandson who I've been talking to, it was his dad was the one-year-old. He was actually raised by Irene's parents because once the both of their parents, Irene and her husband, had died, um, the grandparents raised those children. Yeah, listeners, I mean, I just imagine Irene boarding that boat and how excited she'd be to see her kids, her husband, have this new education, all the people in Provo that are aware of what she's doing, anxious for her to come back. She's made terrific choices um, to to be safe. Um, she's a second-class passenger, and it's interesting you point out that a um, majority of those lived. She's young. She would know how to take care of herself. But this idea that she's conflicted, perhaps, with, I've got to be safe, but i got to help these people. I, you know, I, I want to reread Elder Cook's talk. I'd you know, because life is really complicated sometimes and simple platitudes, she was needed more on the other side or this was God's will used to work for me, but it's more complicated than that. I'm, I think her three kids would really like her to have made it home and, and her husband and her posterity. And, um, but I think back to that tall mountain when we all get on the other side and we see the totality of the plan of salvation and and this three-act play, we're in the middle of a three-act play. It's just a little slice of eternity that that's my hope, listeners. And we all go to the top of that mountain and we see the totality of this mortal experience that Irene Corbett's experience will somehow make more sense. And maybe she'll be able to talk about why it makes sense, even though I have to think Irene would love to have stayed and raised her kids and blessed lives with her training. So it's just I love the title of his talk, The Songs They Could Not Sing Because They're Not Here Anymore. Any more thoughts on the complicated nature of death? (laughs) Um, I don't know if you get into that at all, just, you know, how you reconcile that. I guess we don't. Or do you want to talk about another story um, in our last segment? Or both? (laughs) Yeah, sure. So... Uh, a story that came to mind was um, from Mihaila, and she is Romanian, and she talks about her experience of trying to get pregnant with her husband. So she and her husband, Sterling, they married in their late 30s, and she thought, well, my mom had no trouble in getting pregnant. It should be no issue for me. And they struggled intensely with infertility. And so they went through several trials of in vitro fertilization. And that's an expensive process. And through this process, they were able to welcome their first child, which was thrilling to them. But they felt like more babies were meant to be in their family. And so Mihaila talks about how she was pregnant with twins and how she and her husband were elated and just so happy to have their family grow. And they lost one of the babies. One of the babies didn't make it. And so they were very saddened 
and still hopeful because they had this little one who was still like surviving. So Mihaila was scheduled to go see um, like her OBGYN and she said, Sterling, like, it's okay. I don't need you to be here. Like we're at the safe zone. We're going to be okay. And so they did the ultrasound and a heartbeat wasn't there. And she found out that she had lost that other baby. And she describes the grief in such like profound terms. I mean, well, part of it, she couldn't even articulate how heavy it was. And she talked about how she went into this deep depression where if she went to church and somebody asked her how she was doing, she would just break down in tears because she was so overcome with despair as well as confusion of like, why is this happening to our family? And she had this remarkable experience where one day she woke up, it was Monday, and she felt better. She felt like a burden had been lifted. And she's like, what the heck is going on? Especially since she had experienced this depression for for months. And she talked to her husband and he said, oh, I forgot to tell you, um, the bishopric, they held a special fast for you yesterday. And she describes it as such a miracle. But when she was feeling better, she was able to look at the situation with more clarity. And I remember her telling me in the interview, she just said, Becky, to be honest, I don't know why we lost those little ones. I don't know why. And you know, it's exactly what you said. When sometimes a person passes away, we want to give them every platitude under the sun. Like they're in a better place. God needed them. Their mission is done. How can you say those things when we have these two little babies And so she just kept on saying, Becky, I don't know why that happens. I just know that God wants me to keep moving, keep me moving forward and that I am in a much better position for him to help me if I keep on going. And she was able to create space for not knowing, for that confusion and just wondering like why this happened. And yet she's still able to move forward with her life and taking care of her family and her beautiful children. And I think that's really amazing because sometimes with the gospel, we want so desperately to find answers to very difficult questions, but sometimes those questions are not meant to be answered in this life. And it's such a test of faith for us to keep going and to trust, even though it hurts so much, even though we feel alone, even though we don't understand. And so she was just such an incredible example of faith to me that she made space for the hard feelings and she kept on going. That was a terrific segment. Anything else either of you would like to share? I, I, I just, I, I have learned a, a ton from the women in this book and, and it's been great to hear feedback from others who are, um, who are learning from them as well. And so we're so grateful that we felt, you know, inspired or whatever you want to call it to write the book and to find the women that we found to be in here because they truly like what we've touched on. They truly were just living their lives to the best of their abilities through heartache and hardship and divorce and loss and so many other things. Um, but they kept on going and like, like what Becky just said, they made space for it and then they had to keep on moving forward. And so, um, so we're grateful for each of them in the book and that, and that they did that and that they were good examples to us and that we can learn from, from them. It's a terrific book listeners. Um, I think personal stories motivate us. I'm remembering, um, there's a lot of stories in our scriptures. I'm remembering a book that was written called Book of Mormon Heroes by various authors when, like 20 or 30 years ago. I remember how much it meant to me to hear authors write about um, these Book of Mormon heroes and um, made their life in the scripture even more real to me. I recognize those are all men, I think, in the Book of Mormon Heroes. I can't remember if some of the women in the Book of Mormon were mentioned, but I love that this is a story about women, ordinary women, extraordinary faith. I wish I'd read a book like this um, 30 years ago um, as a man, because I think it would have given me a better understanding of 
um, really faithful women, not only that I knew in my family, but um, from my own firsthand experience, but um, around our faith community. So I, you know, I think this is just a terrific book, and I hope young men's and young women's organizations, perhaps as part of a lesson when we're teaching a concept of uh, faithfulness, and this book might, you might bring in a story from one of these women, a part of the story or the whole story. And yeah, I think it provides what, you know, it sometimes takes these gospel principles that we teach. And if you apply a personal story to it that are in these 23 stories, it can really motivate people. Um, stories have really motivated me and helped me in my life um, to apply gospel principles and also to create personal vision as I hear other people's stories. So I um, encourage listeners, we'll link to the, the book and the show notes and um, raise your hand if there's any final comments. Uh, one, one final thing is we have started an Instagram account Ooh, and good. it's called at she did book is where you can find it. And in here, we just, we kind of um, carried on with what we started in the book and we share stories of um, people who are doing ordinary but also amazing things and just living their lives and people who have had a few struggles, but they're working their way through those. And, and also just fun stuff, like talking about um, women and there's, there was some men on there too, but uh, just different hobbies that people, Latter-day Saint women around the world do. And I don't know, it's been fun so far. So if anyone wants to check that out as well. Great. That's um, at she did book. Is that right? Yep, that's right. All right. We'll link to that in the show notes. I just added that account on my Instagram because I want to follow that account. And um, it looks like you got some great stuff. But um, Becky Hood and Emily Cushing, thank you. This is an inspired work. You two coming together as co-authors and bringing these 23 women's stories to life is just so needed and so thoughtful. And um, listeners, thank you for joining us and um, listening to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. And this is Richard Osley, your host, signing off. <laughs>